Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. There's just two days to go, ladies and gentlemen, until Super Saturday when we can all start believing again that life can and will return to normal sometime soon. It's not just about going back to the pub or going out for a meal. It's also about having the freedom to go and spend the night somewhere else, the freedom to actually do what you want and the freedom to be able to decide for yourself what you're actually going to do. Let's face it, 80% of the frustration we have all been feeling for the last few weeks has been that right has been taken away from us. I might not want to go on holiday right now. I might not want to go on holiday right this minute, but I would dearly love to be able to make that choice for myself. And I know a lot of people feel the same way. You might not want to race headlong down at the pub on Saturday lunchtime, but you'd like to be able to if you decide you want to. This, I think, is what the government has been struggling with. This is where they have tried to find the balance between rebuilding the economy and keeping people safe. We, of course, uh, here at the Independent Republic, uh, will be hosting our very own pub party uh, on Saturday morning. Uh, Myself and Kevin O'Sullivan will be in a nearby hostelry, uh, officially opening Super Saturday for all of you. Of course, there are plenty of people who will continue to be critical of the way they have done it. As far as the government is concerned, I will not be one of them. Boris Johnson and his ministers are grappling with an unbelievably complex and ever-changing landscape as we can witness this morning. One news story has the rate of COVID-19 infection dropping by 40% last week. Meanwhile, we are being told that there may have to be more local lockdowns in mostly northern cities and towns, similar to what is happening in Leicester as we speak. Surely they can't both be right, can they? We'll be finding out from some medical people later on. 03444991000. Coming up later, we'll be asking you what else Harry Windsor should be sorry about. Apparently he's now become the Lily Allen of the royal family, apologising for everyone who hasn't done anything about racism, including me. Here's a tip, Hazza. Don't start a video with the words, My wife said recently... It makes you sound like an idiot. Also, are you going to apologise for dressing up as a Nazi, being photographed posing naked, playing pool in Las Vegas with a load of strippers, or maybe for Uncle Andrew and his unusual friends? Nah, didn't think so. 0344-499-1000. As usual, we want to hear from you, of course, this morning. You are the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic out there on the front line. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And what are you planning this weekend? Do let us know on the home of Common Sense, because you are listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time, I'm very happy to say, to say a very, very good morning to Mr David Wooding, our first guest, the Sun on Sunday's political editor. David, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Now, this, I think, is the first time we've spoken since uh, your uh, beloved football team managed to pick up uh, a little trophy the other day. So congratulations are in order, I think, first of all. Uh, thank you. Um, a bit of champagne was taken at Chateau Wooders. I was going to say, um, how many days did the celebrations last? Well, it was it was quite fun, actually. Um, uh, I, I was sitting in the garden having a bit of dinner with the wife and my son texted me from his flat to say they've got a goal down and I think oh a long way to go <laughs> then they equalise and then when they go 2-1 two, two down we come in to watch the TV and then uh, 
there's quite a bit of shouting going on with the patio doors open. Then there's a tap on the door at the final whistle and my wife goes, there you go, the neighbours have come to complain. And there was my lovely next-door neighbour, uh, a late Norian supporter, holding a bottle of chill champagne and said, I've had this one stuck in the fridge waiting for you for a few weeks. Now, doesn't that so, tell that you all you need to know about the, the real Britain? You know, not the one that gets yeah. painted in the papers uh, by the likes of Prince Harry uh, and how we're all racist and nobody gets a chance to have any goodness or luck about them at all. But uh, let's talk about uh, events in general, because as I said at the top of the, sh- uh, the show, it's a bit confusing, the picture this morning, as far as medically uh, and COVID is concerned. And I don't expect you to give me the answer to this. But on the one hand, we've been told in the Telegraph that the infections have tumbled uh, after the lockdown was relaxed, by, uh, down by as much as 40%. But at the same time, we're being told there's quite a lot of cities in the north of England that might have to have the same lockdown procedure done as Leicester. Yes, it is strange. And, and you know, London was regarded as the hotbed. And I noticed that London is bottom of the league. Well, London's now got zero cases, zero. right? Zero, yeah. Absolutely. From being the, the, the place, and I heard Kwasi Kwartang, the, the, the minister, on, on, uh, on radio or TV somewhere yesterday propping up saying, well, one of the reasons we've got a higher instance of COVID is because London is a big multicultural hub with people from all over the world. Yeah. Back in zero now. Um, it, it is quite bizarre. I, I wonder whether it's to do with um, the, the, the makeup of different communities and the way they live and the way they yeah. work, the sort of the sort of employment that people are involved in, the sort of social lives they have and their living conditions. Yes, um, that that may, make make uh, the, 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 the. But, but interestingly enough, right. David, I mean, there can't be any more dangerous a place to catch COVID nineteen than the London Underground system, and certainly no, um, we were told uh, that the, uh, the virus could spread really, really quickly in one carriage alone if somebody's got the virus and they just start speaking without wearing a mask um, everybody else gets it yes it's all about being indoors and uh, and, and close to people mm. and, and picking up the droplets uh, as they talk or, or sneeze or cough that's what that, that's what terrifies me about traveling on the on the underground or indeed a mainline train if it's packed is that, is that I, I, I don't like people coughing and sneezing on trains at the no. best of times. Well, who uh, does? But, but, yeah, but, but you know, imagine, imagine the, the, the looks they're going to get now if people do that. Well, do you know, it's just before this all happened, just that. before I started travelling uh, by car into work, I, I was about to get on a bus one morning and I felt the urge to cough and I thought, I don't know what to do now. I can't get on the bus. If I get on the bus and cough, I'm going to be a pariah. If I start coughing before I get on the bus, they're going to say you can't get on the bus, you know, but there's people becoming really paranoid. I'll tell you what, the sales of handkerchiefs are going to go up. Yes. When I used to go to school, my mum always made sure I had a a freshly pressed handkerchief in my pocket. Have you got your handkerchief? Yes. That seems to have gone by the wayside these days. The number of people you see who don't have handkerchiefs... so I think, yeah, we must all go out with a handkerchief. Yes, well, that, listen, very, very, very yeah, we can get some autorial advice from you towards the end of the yeah. programme. Uh, don't, don't just put it in the top of your pocket, as I know yes. you do, Mike, in your, your jacket pocket. Put it in your trouser pocket so you can actually use it. Yes, right? exactly right. <laughs> now, now, let's talk about some of the matters arising from Prime Minister's questions yesterday, where, once again, uh, the incredibly forensic Sir Keir Starmer, who I thought was doing a pretty good impression of Eeyore, uh, sounding incredibly gloomy and doomy and talking about uh, numbers that that nobody was really that interested in. He was basically banging on about why Leicester was being locked down and shouldn't it have been locked down earlier? Didn't the numbers uh, tell the truth and shouldn't the numbers have properly been given to the mayor and all of this? And it was a really kind of, even for him, sort of lacklustre and dull approach, I thought. Yes, uh, it's quite interesting how this has changed, Mike, because when he first started... 
TMQs. Boris Johnson looked a bit on the back foot. Yeah. Couldn't take this forensic sort of legal uh, interrogation that he was getting. And I think I once remarked on one of your shows that Boris Johnson looks like a defendant in the dock mm. with, uh, with Rumpole of the Bailey standing on the dispatch box. If you notice the demeanour of Sir Keir Starmer, the way he leans on the dispatch box, he could almost have a wig on his head. Mm. He looks like a lawyer. In fact, um, in fact, he, uh, he, he turned to the speaker yesterday and says, can I now turn to, and it, you can imagine a lawyer mm. saying that, can I now yeah. turn to the uh, 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 file number 3B in your bundle? Yeah. Um, it was that sort of attitude. The thing is, he's not in a court of law. And Boris Johnson has worked out, I think, how to deal with this. Now, yes. He just blusters his way through, tells him he's talking nonsense, and goes into passion drive where he shouts and raises his arms and, uh, and just blusters his way through it. And, of course, because it's not a court of law, uh, uh, Keir Starmer can't turn to the judge of, or Sir Lindsay Hoyle and say, answer the question yes. and, and be told that he has to answer mm. yes or no. We're in politics, and it doesn't work the same way. No, quite. That, and that, also, that sort of dull attitude isn't really working. It now. really isn't, no. And it's very amusing to see Boris occasionally referring to him as my learned friend um, yeah. and, and, you know, your witness and all this kind of stuff and just really making fun of it all. But you're right, because one of the things he did yesterday, and this is where he gets it wrong, I think, Starmer, he started attacking Boris for not helping people and for, you know, uh, he he was asking him for a number of people that he thought might be unemployed come the end of uh, September. And, and, and Boris, I think, was quite rightly got a bit sort of his hackles raised there because he said, well, hang on, we've, we, have, we have saved the jobs of millions and millions of people. And you might actually say something good about that, but he doesn't. Yes, uh, it is, in fairness, the, the opposition's duty to oppose and to try and hold the government to account. But yes, we have seen uh, pumped into this economy far more money than, uh, sorry, public money mm. into propping jobs. Uh, than than even Jeremy Corbyn (laughs) suggested he wanted to do uh, when he was leader of the opposition. The the actual level of public spending, over £100 billion on this at the moment, 150 you know, whatever it is now, a lot of counts. Well, Uh, I've stopped counting, I don't know about you. Well, it it frightens you to death if you start counting (laughs) how much money has gone in there. But, uh, yes, uh, it is a case that there's always more that he wants. I mean, the jobs have been propped up during the... 13, 14-week lockdown to, to save people's livelihoods, and they've all been paid. And most of us think that was the right thing to do, and it's a Conservative government that's done it. Um, it's very easy to say, well, we need to do more. What are we going to do now? Well, I mean, we've really got to get back on our own two feet, mm. get the economy moving and get back to work as soon as we can. Yeah. And it's a very difficult decision. There is no easy answer to this. People who are vulnerable, old, uh, slightly um, have, have health conditions of their own, are rightly saying, well, this is going too quickly. Let's stay in our homes. Let's not get out yet. Those of us who are looking one eye onto the economy and our jobs and our futures are saying, well, we've got to get back to work. And it's for Boris Johnson to tread this tightrope between those two issues and try to do what he can to help. And it's so easy in opposition to say, well, you're doing too much of one or not the other or vice versa. And that's what Sakir Starmer's doing. But yeah, that's his job, I guess. Well, exactly right. And about half an hour ago or so, uh, the the new rules came out for a return to school in September. And this is quite a big event, I think, for the government, not least because they've had to struggle uh, with various teaching unions and with various parental groups who are not sure that it's safe to go back. I mean, obviously, what we're seeing in Leicester 
at the moment is the schools shutting again. Um, but they've issued the new guidelines just this morning saying that basically uh, the, the, the return to school uh, in September will not necessarily require pupils of any age to sit apart. So they're more or less saying that by September, social distancing will be a thing of the past. Well, let's hope so. Uh, we are now we're beginning of July, um, another two months of this. We've had we've had three months, mm. so let's hope that's that's the way things are moving. Yeah, it is well known that that children are less likely to to pass on the virus. Uh, or, uh, or, or well, they're less likely to to, to to be affected by it, but they can yeah. pass it on. We're told. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But the, the risk to kids is far less. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's another thing. Apart from the economy, we need our children to be learning. They've lost months and months of education. Yeah. Uh, people reading and writing. I mean, there's already kids who are leaving primary school, substantial numbers, and up to half a million, unable to read, write, and add up mm. properly. What chances have those kids got? And those are the kids from the most um, uh, deprived families, and they really need to get um, a lift if they're going to get out out of the poverty background and get into a, a decent standard of living as they grow up. And, and again, all of this feeds into crime, unemployment, all the other issues, drugs, all these things, because if kids are not educated properly, their life chances are thrown away. And we really do need to get our kids back to school. It's, you can't emphasise that well enough, really. No, of course. The big story, I suppose, that came out of the uh, uh, of the day yesterday politically was on the front page of the Times and some other papers this morning about Hong Kong. Um, and this quite sort of um, unusually generous offer, I suppose, coming from the government via Dominic Raab, Priti Patel and Boris Johnson, that three million Hong Kong migrants may end up coming here uh, if this Chinese crackdown gets any worse. Yes, um, and notice the difference here between the two governments, the Communist government of China, who arrested 370 million, uh, sorry, 370 people yesterday for, for having peaceful demonstrations that's showered them with tear gas, water mm. cannon and pepper spray, um, and they've, they've imposed massive uh, new crackdown on free speech, life in jail sentences if you go on, on demos. Uh, and then the British government who are saying, well, look, we'll stand by this, uh, this territory which we handed back to the Chinese, what, 27 years ago? Yeah. Um, uh, 1997, that's right. Uh, and, and we're saying, well, there's 2.9 million Hong Kong uh, residents who are eligible to here so we'll let them come over and extend their passports for up to five years with a path to british citizenship mm. um, i think that's the right thing to do and i think most people would agree with that in fact i think there's a yougov poll out this morning which says that uh, 64 percent of british people um think that allowing uh, hong kong people to come to britain without a job or a study offer but to, uh, to, 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 to escape what's going on in their territory is the right thing to do. And it sounds like there might be some deal to be done as well with the, the five I countries like New Zealand, Australia, the US and Canada. So some of them may go to those countries. So for people in this country who might be listening, thinking, well, hang on a minute, where are three million people going to go? I suspect it won't be that number. No, many of them will go to some of the uh, Asian-Pacific countries like uh, uh, on the doorstep, which are, you know, which is more where they're where, closer to them from where they want to go to. Of course, some of them will want to go back to Hong Kong if the situation changes. Yeah. Um, but I, again, this raises the 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 issue of China's communist regime. I mean, we we, we were starting to, already talking about Huawei and our 5G network. Um, this can only lead to Britain 
uh, taking a firmer stance with Hong Kong. Who, yes. Remember, only a year ago when we were talking about Brexit, they were one of the big trading partners we were thinking of going into business with. Right. Uh, now yeah, but I mean, in a funny right. sort of way, the whole coronavirus outbreak has changed that attitude in a, in a, in a, in a sort of way. Uh, and in a similar way, this attack on Hong Kong has changed everybody's attitudes. I think our, our attitude to, to China is very much hardening at the moment. It is, definitely, definitely. And, you know, the, uh, the, the way they handle the... Uh, in fact, there's the, the some slight parallels with the, uh, the scribbles poisoning in Salisbury where, yeah. where, where our Russian relationships uh, soured as a result of that. And, uh, and the fact that they haven't come clean about the, uh, the coronavirus outbreak and how it, uh, how it, uh, how it began and what, what their culpability was in it. Uh, our relationships with China in a big, big way. This, this in Hong Kong was only sought, sought to uh, deepen that, uh, uh, the, the, the freeze that relationships are in at the moment. No, absolutely right. David, thanks very much indeed. David Wooding, lines a little bit uh, slippery there, so apologies if you weren't able to hear everything that David was saying. Uh, he's the Sun on Sunday's political editor. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's try and get some sense from Jonathan Davis, economist, presenter of the Booms and Bust podcast, of course. Jonathan, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Thank you, mate. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm not obviously going to ask you to delineate the difference between a rising infection rate and a falling infection rate, because that may not necessarily be your area of expertise. Um, but we've lost quite a few jobs over the last couple of days. 12,000, I think, is the uh, is the number. What are you making of how things are going? Um, I'm afraid to say it's unravelling exactly as people like me said it would since two or three months ago. Um, Then I told you and your colleagues that um, this nonsense lockdown, as I call it, um, will cause a cataclysm in the economy. Um, Clearly, we've seen the economy fall an astonishing 25%. And although there will be a massive surge as lockdown ends, um, the net result of 2020 is that uh, the economy will be 10% about smaller than 2019. That is a multiple of of the reduction in the size of the economy we saw in 2008. In terms of unemployment, as you mentioned, um, we've already seen something like 650,000 job losses well, I said two or three months ago, it was going to be one and a half to three million. I'm afraid to say that's what's going to happen. On top of that, post-lockdown, post uh, the surge, we're going to see extremely lacklustre economic growth, if any, for years. So expect long-term recession. What would you say, though, to those who would also say from the other side of the coin that uh, if the government can spend its way out uh, of this particular problem, then then surely that's what they should do. And part of uh, Boris Johnson's new deal uh, that he spoke of this week is, 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 is about to do that. Five billion quid that he's going to put into the, uh, uh, into the economy. I know that that's uh, probably what you're going to describe as a drop in the ocean, but uh, it's a start, isn't it? Um, you know, if, if only we could um, borrow and spend our way um, out of economic problems, if that were true, then Zimbabwe wouldn't have hundreds of percent per annum inflation. Um, it wouldn't be an economic basket case. Um, Venezuela would be the most powerful economy on the planet. It's absolute arrant nonsense. 
and it's been proven over decades, hundreds of years, that borrowing and spending doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work in Zimbabwe and it doesn't work in Venezuela, but Jonathan, you would not surely describe Venezuela and Zimbabwe as in any way comparable to the great United Kingdom. In terms of our institutions and our sense of democracy, of course there's no difference. But we have for the last 20 or 25 years, uh, whenever there's been a recession, we simply build every um, zombie company out and, and and kick the can down the road and pretended that all is well. All we've done is increase debt, both uh, nationally with the government, the state, uh, corporate and household, making our situation even more precarious. And and let me give you a difference between now and coming out of 2008. Then we slashed borrowing rates, mortgage rates, for example, from basically 6% to 1%. That is what got us out of recession and created years of lackluster economic growth. We will not reduce interest rates this time. Okay, and the recession is the worst since the 1930s. Yeah, but we can't reduce the interest rates any more than we than, than exactly. they are already now because they're so low. Exactly. Hmm. But I mean, I'm, I, I would take issue with, with, with what you're saying about that as well, because the problem with having such low interest rates is that nobody saves any money. There isn't any point in saving any money. So you just spend it because you don't make anything if you, if you put it into a savings account. Well, that, that again is what the socialist uh, Keynesian econ- economists say. Uh, of course, it's... Uh, you accusing me of being a socialist, well. Jonathan, for heaven's sake. I mean, I'll take some, some offence, but I won't have you calling me a socialist. <laughs> well, socialism is, is a function, is it not, um, of a government becoming a bigger part of an economy. Uh, the government is the biggest part of the economy we've seen in decades decades as we speak. If that isn't socialism, communism, I don't know what is. Um, and uh, well, what, would you rather, what would and, you rather, Jonathan, that the government right? had done back in March? What would you have advised the government to do back in March? Um, well, you know, that is different to what should we do now? What we well, should no, have done back what, in what March? What should they have done, though? We shouldn't have locked down, as indeed many other countries didn't lock down. Can we talk about what we should be doing now rather than what we should have done four months ago because it, it is what it is. We're, we're where we are and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Where we but, are but, I mean, in order for, but In order for me to see what you're describing as the answer now, I'd like to know what you would have prescribed as the answer then. And okay. I think you'd have been wrong not to lock down because I think politically, you, right. might, you might say economically it was wrong, but politically you could not not lock down. Hmm. Well, that, that, that's funny because uh, these, are, these are some of the countries off the top of my head who didn't lock down. Uh, Switzerland, Sweden, um, all, Japan. All completely. All, in a, yeah, but all of those countries, Jonathan, which, you know, you're not the first person that's told me about this. All of those countries are entirely different from this country. They are not as populated. They are not uh, filled with people living so close together. Uh, they are right. much, much uh, smaller right. economies. And so, therefore, really? it's not comparable. Really? Hong Kong and Singapore is not populated. No, they're not as populated as Britain. It's a very small place. Hong Kong is tiny, wow. as is Singapore. Yeah. 
Um, yes, they, they are tiny. And uh, um, Hong Kong, for example, is a fraction the size of our economy. And yet also, people over, do not... over our island, sorry, yeah, over jo- our jo- island. Listen... And yet they have nine million people. Yeah, but the point is, not pe- people do not travel through Hong Kong in the way that they travel through London. People do not travel really? through Singapore as the way they travel right. through London. Okay. And that is simply so, a, a, okay. a bogus so, argument. So don't make it, right. please. So we disagree on that. Where do we go from there? Well, what do you think we should do now then? Right. Instead of keeping zombie companies alive, which is what we did post-2000 recession, what we did post-2008 recession, um, we should um, instead um, let the flowers grow, not help the weeds, to use a metaphor, a gardening metaphor. In other words, um, stop bailing out basically companies which are the old economy, let the new economy come through, which will give us the economic growth and prosperity. If we continue to do what we've done for the last 20 odd years, then all we're going to do is continue with lackluster growth, if any, rising and soaring indeed unemployment, which will be, which will be more sustained than we saw in the last 10 years. And on top of that, um, Aggregate incomes are falling, thus the prosperity of the bottom 90% is falling rapidly. The top 10%, they're doing okay. The top 1%, indeed the top 0.1%, are doing fantastically well. Inequality is rising because of the policies of the last 20 odd years, which are just being continued and exacerbated. It's not the solution. It's simply a palliative on cancer. So you want more people to be unemployed, in other words? We are going to have one and a half to three million extra unemployed anyway. We are going to have the biggest recession since the 1930s anyway. And all the people who say we should continue doing what we're doing, um, all that's going to happen is it's going to be just mildly less bad than it's going to be. So I say, let's take a bigger hit in the short term than we're going to have anyway to benefit the medium to long term. Alternatively, what we have is we're going to have a slightly lesser hit in the short term and we're going to have a bigger problem in the medium to long term. Now, that to me is silly. And all it is 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 political short-termism, it doesn't help the British people. Well, I don't know of anyone who's saying that we should carry on doing what we're doing. I think the government wants to take people out of the furlough system, wants to get them back working, wants to kickstart the economy, which is why Boris Johnson made his speech this week about rebuilding uh, schools and about putting more housing estates up and making more uh, infrastructure work and putting more people to work. So I think they are planning on doing that. And I think, um, you know, you've got a, a perfect right to your uh, your point of view uh, but I don't agree with it and I don't think that uh, in any event our growth uh, before any of this happened was any worse than other countries in the world in fact it was substantially better than an awful lot of countries in Europe Jonathan but we can't uh, yes. carry on arguing with each other so I'm going to leave it there I'm going to offer you the opportunity uh, to come and spend your way out of the uh, recession with me in the pub on Saturday if you so wish uh, we'd be delighted to see you uh, and we might be even put a smile on your face well, 
Um, that that that's uh, an astonishing um, statement. Uh, I, 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 um, damning with praise and a pejorative. Um, hundreds of billions of pounds we uh, pumped into the system uh, 12 years ago to get basically one or one and a half percent economic growth. We're now pumping in more hundreds of billions, and yet we're going to have the biggest recession since 1930s. Um, it, it's not the way to continue. It, it's uh, it's short termism. Okay, I'll take that as a no then. Jonathan Davis, thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Becky Adams, sports therapist uh, from Stockport. Becky and I did a little uh, fitness podcast at the beginning of this lockdown, which was quite well received. Um, we've not really spoken for a while, Becky, but a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Morning, Mike. How, like, how are you? Yeah, very well, very well. Probably better than you, I suppose, because um, you're not very happy at the moment. You've been told that despite the fact that you do a job which is very similar to lots of other, um, you know, sort of fitness-related jobs, you, for some reason, are not in the category of people who's allowed to go back to work. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's it's a little bit confusing as to why. Um, we've not really been given any sort of clinical or scientific reasoning for that. Um, we've just been, unfortunately, classified as a massage parlour, and so we're told we're not allowed to work. Um so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit difficult because obviously we've got um, clients that are wanting to book in that are in pain. Um, uh, physiotherapists are actually working and have worked throughout um, in the NHS, as you'd expect, um, to deal with things like um, the aftermath of, say, heart attacks or those kinds of conditions. But we also know that physiotherapists are now back working on um, musculoskeletal problems, which is the very area that we treat. And for some reason, we're not allowed to go back to work. Yeah, I mean, how on earth did it end up uh, that you got classified 
in the same way as, as a massage parlor, like a sports massage uh, basically is something which you would imagine goes on every day of the week in a football club, for example, where they're now playing uh, Premier League football. So well, how is that different from what you do? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's no different. And if anything, we do um, a lot more than that. So massage is just one of our tools that we use to try and get somebody pain-free or injury-free. Um, I think, again, like I said, we don't really know. I think the confusion has come from maybe the term sports therapist in that they presume that all we do is deal with sport, which isn't the case. Um, and I think they've just put a big blanket term over the massage side of things and just classed us all as massage parlours, right. which... And it's, you know, it's just not true. The amount of sort of precautions and PPE and regulations that we meet, um, I guess when we practice normally, so COVID aside, um, we're so used to working with PPE and hygiene. Um, We've stepped that all up to another level now. We've spent hundreds of pounds um, as individuals to try and get our clinics up to scratch. We've changed our procedures, we've changed our policies, and yet we're still not being allowed back to work. Right. So um, are you currently on furlough then? Is that is that the situation? Or are you classed as a an independent worker or a sole trader or something? Yeah, I'm self-employed, so um, I'm not not able to be furloughed, um, which I know is the position that a lot of a lot of my colleagues are in as well, um, which is unfortunate. Mm. I think the other thing is that this week we found out that sports therapists in wales and northern ireland are allowed back to work from uh, monday right so why that's the case and why not here we, we just don't know right and who's responsible becky for making this decision if, if there's somebody you can talk to or there's somebody maybe we can talk to uh, about it who who's making these decisions again we honestly don't know i mean it's, it's got to be coming from the government level and um, we've tried sort of as individuals we've all written to our local mps um we seem to be getting very similar responses back so some are obviously very supportive and will raise the issue in parliament um others are kind of saying that you know we've just got to wait and be patient and you know, kind of wait our turn to be let back to work, which I think if we were doing something completely different to the industries that are let back to work would be fair enough. Mm. But as we aren't, we're doing, if anything, I think in some cases we're going to be safer than a lot of places that are reopening because, as I said, we have full PPE. We've um, we've got the hygiene procedures in place and our clients are going to be protected. Um, you know, I'm not so sure that people are going to be protected two o'clock in the morning in a pub, for example. Well, that's what seems, that that's where it starts to seem ridiculous, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've always wondered why, um, you know, if you can't, if, you, if you've got spaces in restaurants, why not open them? It can't be any more dangerous than being in a supermarket. And as you say, being in a pub um, with people, because you know as well as I do, whatever happens this weekend, there will be some pubs which get overcrowded. It's, gonna, it's bound to happen. And yet you can't go ahead and do your own business. I mean, do you normally work from um a premises or do you sort of travel around how does it work yeah so predominantly i work out of um, a gym which is also obviously closed at the moment um but there were sort of provisions made for me to um, use another entrance so we've, we've set everything up so that i've got a separate sink cleaning facilities so obviously there's a lot of time and investment that's gone into this yeah. um we were kind of you know assuming i think as as the gyms were that we were going to be opening from monday um and then that's all just changed with the last announcement so it's all a little bit confusing at the moment and obviously disappointing you know we've 
I think we do do an important job. There's, um, it's not just, as I said, it's not just people that play sport, either professionally or at an amateur level. I deal with a lot of people that are in chronic pain who are asking me for appointments and there's nothing that I can do um, other than give them a few exercises to do remotely. Yeah. So you're not even allowed to visit their homes to do whatever it is that they want you to do? No, and we've been told that even when we open back up that mobile appointments um, are going to be a no-go for the foreseeable, which I can sort of understand because we haven't got control over the environment. So, I, you know, I understand that. Um, but again, that does impact, especially on some of my elderly clients who are in pain and who I go and see on a weekly basis. Yeah, but again, I mean, you're allowed to go uh, to somebody's house to clean it but you can't go to somebody's house with all the protective equipment that you have to do yeah. what it is that you professionally know how to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you know, you kind of have to pick your battles with these sorts of things. So just to be able to open up in a clinic was was going to be a start, and then we'd worry about the mobile thing a bit later, I think. Um, but, yeah, as it is, it's just really unfortunate that we're not allowed to do anything at all. And I think, I think it's quite sort of short-sighted in a way that, you know, I might have, I've had a few people, for example, this week say they've been working at home for three months. Um, the posture's terrible. They're getting aches and pains in the shoulders, like you'd imagine. Um, you know, they're, they're not sort of mobile anymore in the shoulders. Mm. Ultimately, that is going to lead to some, you know, pot well, potentially could lead to something like a frozen shoulder, which then becomes an NHS issue. So, yeah sake of allowing us to open up and kind of stop these issues getting worse rather than putting a burden on the nhs i just can't see the logic behind it no no it's bizarre isn't it and also a lot of owners of gym chains as well have been speaking uh, out about how they can make their gyms safer um do you think that's going to be the first sign that maybe you can go back to work if they, if they start allowing gyms to reopen I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think if the gym starts to open, then there's absolutely no reason at all why why we can't. But again, I think it's really difficult for gym owners. Obviously, I work in a, um, a privately run gym. And in terms of the inside of their gym, they have everything already socially distanced, just the way it's set out. You know, the squat racks are two metres apart. They could quite easily operate under social distancing conditions. Mm. But I guess, you know, they in fairness, you couldn't go and inspect every single gym in the country, but it just seems that everybody's been kind of put in the same um, bubble, if you like, and it's just, you know, a blanket ban on opening up, which doesn't seem fair, especially, you know, if you've got regulations in place and we, we've all, like I said, we've had extra training, we've, we've met regulations, we've probably gone over and above, mm. to be honest. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just really frustrating and obviously really sad for our clients because we can't, help them well it's pretty sad for you as well if you can't make any money i mean how have you managed to get by with uh, uh with not being able to have any income at all for the last sort of three months basically yeah i mean luckily for me i do work um i do three days a week at manchester uni and i've been able to do that at home so that's research work which is different to the clinic work right. uh, you know I, I speak to, to colleagues friends all the time that are in this industry that are really struggling they've they've not been able to earn any money and at the same time, are being expected to spend hundreds of pounds on PPE or transforming their clinics to get ready for reopening to then be told we can't reopen. So, yeah, it's it's really difficult for people. And, you know, I think a few businesses are going to be lost because of this, unfortunately. 
Yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, listen, Becky, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on and telling us that story because we'll try and put it to some uh, MPs and some government ministers when we get them on. Uh, Becky Adam there talking about the rather unfair, it seems to, to her and also to me, uh, situation where people who do things like sports therapy, which is quite medically based, by the way, um, are somehow classed as massage parlourists, which seems a bit ludicrous, and they're not allowed to open and they're not allowed to make any money. And the people who need the treatment are not allowed to get the treatment either. So we'll have to try and pick up that particular cause and run with it and see if we can get some answers for you. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So Megan is now claiming that she made the UK a billion quid uh, because of the wedding that she uh, organised uh, here in Windsor uh, on behalf of her and, of course, not her father, but her mother uh, and Harry. Harry apologises for racism in society. Uh, she's basically said that she was hung out to dry. She felt unprotected. You know, this is the same woman who went to America uh, where they have less protection, uh, where they don't think the paparazzi exist and where basically they were supposed to be keeping out the public eye. Well, she's on the front page of the Daily Mail. She's on the front page of the Sun. Let's have a listen uh, and watch if you're watching YouTube right now, uh, because that's where we are. Uh, let's have a listen to Harry. My wife said recently that our generation and the ones before us haven't done enough to right the wrongs of the past. I too am sorry. Sorry that we haven't got the world to the place that you deserve it to be. Institutional racism has no place in our societies, yet it is still endemic. Unconscious bias must be acknowledged without blame to create a better world for all of you. I want you to know that we are committed to being part of the solution and to being part of the change that you are all leading. Now is the time, and we know that you can do it. What is it exactly that he wants me to do now? I'll tell you what I want him to do now. Here's Charlie Ray. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Mitty. Well, um, you know, here we are again. Uh, The company of uh, fools that call themselves the Duke and Duchess of Sussex uh, have apparently managed to stay... Uh, not away from the newspapers, but have remained very much firmly on the front pages. Well, absolutely. And I I heard this yesterday, uh, late yesterday afternoon. And I have to say, I was astounded when I heard that Meghan was now claiming two things in, in, in court papers that she's now lodged to fight her case against the mail on Sunday, which is going to happen sometime next year, mm. in which she claims that the royal wedding, which cost the taxpayers £32 million, actually made Britain £1 billion. Now, I have no idea where <laughs> she this figure from. I mean, I know she lives in uh, La La La, the fantasy land, and I'm assuming <laughs> that's where she's picked this, this figure from. I mean, I, what I will give her is there is no doubt the, the, um, that royal wedding generated a lot of money for a variety of businesses, probably round about... 250, 300 million in sales of goods uh, associated and in hotels and hospitality and everything else. But one billion? Oh, come on, lovey. I mean, get a grip on reality. And the other thing that she's claiming is that she, um, while she was pregnant, she was left unprotected by the royal family. Well, I'll tell you something, sweetheart. If you want to be unprotected by the, the royal family, you should have been around the days of Diana and the Duchess of York, where they were left to fend for themselves and did, did not get the same sort of support that this woman has had from the royal family, the same sort of support that Kate Middleton had when she joined the royal family, and quite rightly so. They learned a terrible lesson 
on the death of Diana, and this woman has got no grounds at all to complain about the way she has been treated, not only by the royal families, but by the people of this country, who took her to their hearts, and she's now destroyed that love. Also, I find it slightly distasteful that a woman of her means and her privilege, because that's what she has now, if she didn't have it before, uh, can have the gall in the midst of a worldwide pandemic when people are losing their loved ones, you know, watching friends, uh, relatives die, you know, watching people lose their livelihoods, their jobs, that she can even think of complaining about how poor little me is being uh, put upon, victimised and, you know, unprotected. I mean, she's got the life of Riley, for heaven's sake. She has got the life of Riley. Now, it's also interesting that in these court documents, um, she has named the five friends... Uh, who are um, regarded as the, 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 the sisterhood. The inner circle, uh, yeah. The inner circle. Uh, and But she's only named them, uh, it's only officially been named as A, B, C, D and E. Um, <laughs> now, one of, them, one of them is bound to be Jessica Mulrooney, her former... Yes, friend. who's now no longer part of the inner circle. Five down, well, goes down to done, four. Exactly. She's, she's had a fallout because uh, she got caught up in a race row, slagging off. A, a black blogger in Canada and threatened to sue her. Right. So that's that's gone down the toilet as well. But in this in these documents, it says that they spoke anonymously to People magazine, which is what started all this on. After the that she wrote the letter to Thomas Markle, who mm. produced the letter and the Mail on Sunday published it. Now, what she's saying is that these five. Uh, were so concerned for her mental health that they spoke out, but she did not know that they were speaking out. Now, the Mail on Sunday is very keen, as you can imagine, for the five to be physically named. Mm. And I should imagine that they will be called in court to give evidence, um, uh, on, you know, to hear what they've got to say about this about this uh, article yes. that they commented on. Um, so, you know, it's all getting it's all getting rather messy. I, and I don't understand why she thinks that these two items, you know, poor me, they didn't help me out, the royal family, and I, I helped raise £1 billion, um, is going to help her. And also, Mike, she's actually complaining as well that she was a working royal for which she was being paid mm. in the sense of she was being funded by the Prince of Wales, as is uh, William and Kate and Harry. Yeah. And she's complaining that uh, you know other royals are allowed to make money. Well, yeah, that's Trishini and uh, Beatrice and a couple of others because they're not working members of the royal family in the sense that they get money from the state. Yes. They are working members of the royal family because they've, all, they've got jobs, yes. you know, like you and me. But also they have jobs which are uh, employed... Uh, for which they are employed to do a particular job of work. What is not the case is that they are kind of um, resting on their laurels and using their royal status to make money and flog stuff, which is what she basically wanted to do. No, that's that's exactly right. She, I mean, I don't know what she's... I, don't, I really, honestly, I'm starting to lose the plot with her. I haven't got a clue. I don't think she's got a leg to stand on. And the court case, which has not yet been fixed yet, but won't be till next year, I mean, I, I want to book a ringside seat straight away, to be perfectly honest, because it's going to be absolutely yes. sensational. Well, I mean, as ever, uh, with this, as ever with this pair, you know, they've got it completely wrong. Um, you know, they think that they can say things that are never questioned. They think that they can provide uh, information which they limit uh, the information on. For example, this A, B, C, D and E. You know, yeah. this is the court system we're talking about here. And if the issue is of trust then we are entirely entitled to know who these people are, as you say, and probably legally uh, entitled to subpoena them if you are the male on Sunday. And the trouble is, the trouble is that they, if, they, if they didn't have uh, poor judgment, they'd have no judgment at all. 
That's right. That's right. I, I mean, I cannot believe that these people are going to remain anonymous when this court case is going to be. I mean, it's it's a it's a hackneyed phrase. That, you know, that it's going to be the court case of the century. Yes, well, it certainly is going to be the court case of the century. No doubt about that. No, and presumably, People Magazine are going to be in the firing line as well because they'll have to produce somebody to talk about what happened. And it may well be that they decide not to give away who their source was, uh, but it may well be that they are then jailed for contempt of court. Well, it could be. I mean, let's not forget that their publication is seen by something like 32 million people around the world. Right. So it's, it's had quite a wide um, publication, <laughs> yes. this, uh, this, this People magazine. And the only reason Thomas Markle released this letter that she wrote to him is because he thought, well, hang on a second, I'm getting slagged off here left, right and centre. Mm. This is what's actually ha- what, what, what is actually happening here. Right. You know, and it's... And it's right that the Mail on Sunday printed extracts of that of that letter. And let's not forget as well that a judge has already uh, ruled that part of her claim uh, has been uh, ruled out as you know being um, not as uh, irrelevant. I think wasn't it? Irrelevant is the word. Yes, absolutely irrelevant. And what I find fascinating as well about this woman's psyche is that you know what we can say about her. I'm sure is that she pretty much is a control freak's control freak, right? The idea that she did not know that these friends of hers were going to go and talk to People magazine just doesn't sound credible to me in any way, shape, or form. I mean, this is a woman who wanted to run her own Instagram account and didn't even want the royals to put out anything out of Kensington Palace that she had not approved. I do not believe that anyone who was that close to Meghan did not, first of all, seek, uh, you know, authority or a nod of the head to speak, because normally they don't say anything. They normally just restrict it to two words, Mm. which is no comment. Now, they have spoken extensively to uh, People magazine, and I firmly believe that she gave tacit approval at the very least to them speaking to that magazine. Right. And also, what is this other weird line in which she basically says that uh, uh, she took steps, or great steps in her words, to ensure that her father attended the wedding, including booking an L.A. hotel suite in the run-up? Well, guess what, uh, Megan? The wedding wasn't in L.A. So if that's the step that you took, surely she should have got him a hotel suite in Windsor. No, that's... Well, uh, that's, and let's not forget as well that she bought him five suits... Um, and he is a large bloke, and the, the, the company that, that, that made the suits had to find an equally large bloke uh, <laughs> to sell them to. Um, you know, so, um, yes, she says that she booked a hotel prior to the wedding in preparation for him to fly over. Uh, it was, I think, something she calls him, her business manager arranged it all, yeah, yeah. who in actual fact uh, had invited Thomas to come round for dinner that night so he wouldn't feel alone and everything else. But Thomas never got to LA. Uh, you know, by that time, you know, he was in hospital, he was, he'd got uh, heart problems and, and everything. But this is a couple... I mean, the, the most staggering thing of all this, Michael, is that she, Harry has still not met this guy. He's only ever spoken to him on the telephone. Yeah. And apart from a phone call sort of basically threatening that, you know, don't talk to the press and all that sort of stuff, that that's the conversation. I mean, he did ask by phone to, for, the, for, his, for his daughter's hand in marriage, but that, that, that's it. There's been very little communication between uh, Harry and uh, yeah. Marco, and even less between Meghan and Thomas. Right. And also this video of his, right, which is actually longer than the clip that we played of about 40 seconds. I mean, it's embarrassing. 
It's just totally and utterly embarrassing. You know, he talks about what she told him. Um, you know, he's never been that interested in racism before, as far as I can tell. Uh, he doesn't seem to have much to say about one of his former uh, ancestors having some quite close ties to Hitler at one point. He doesn't have much to say about dressing up as a Nazi uh, or indeed romping about naked in a hotel suite in Las Vegas uh, with a bunch of strippers. Well, he's, you're absolutely right, and he has got an awful lot. If he wants to apologise for past misdeeds by members of his own, by members of his own family yeah. and himself, right. there's a very, very long list. And uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, I I know what he should do next, and that is shut up. You know, <laughs> just don't say anything, right. because it's it's not going down well. It's not playing well in this country, and you you are labelling practically everyone in this country as a racist. Yeah, and and that is that is a terrible slur. By, by Harry, uh, you know, on the people who have supported him so well. And we've discussed this before. Remember, this is a guy who did his, his tours in Afghanistan. He was a soldier. He was a hero. We all loved him. We all loved the cheeky chappy stuff and everything else. And nobody really cared about him, get, you know, playing strip billiards with naked women and everything else. We did. It, it was Jack the Lad stuff. And yet he's now managed to destroy all that and become, you know, nobody cares what he says anymore. Just nobody listens to him. No, because what he says is, quite frankly, insulting. Um, and, you know, he has, again, had a complete and utter life of privilege. You know, he lives in, what, I think it's a £15 million mansion in Beverly Hills, uh, somewhere near Rodeo Drive. Um, I presume he doesn't want for anything at all, as he never has done in his life. What he knows about what the rest of the people in this country struggle with, uh, you could put on the back of a postage stamp. You know, one of the great tragedies of, of the world is, and, and Princess Diana was 59 on July the 1st, a couple, mm. you know, day, uh, yesterday. Yeah. And um, if she had still been alive, we would not be in this situation today. She would never have allowed, you know, Harry to go down this road. I'm not suggesting she would have put a foot down about Meghan, but she would have certainly been a, had a hell of a, an input into you know, what they were doing. And yeah. they were doing. Well, she became very adept, didn't she, at the PR machine and the whole business yeah. of handling the, her own image uh, with the press. You know, she suffered at the hands of the press, no question. But she learned how to deal with that very well, and she was very good at it. And so she would be telling you, I'm sure, you know, you're making yourself look foolish here. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Incredible. So what's the latest on, on the next level that we get to with this court case then? I mean, what happens now? When do we, and when do we see them? Well, we won't see them until... Well, the, the, the date has not yet been fixed. We know it's going to be next year, uh, 2021. When exactly is, is not certain. Um, there's, these are the, uh, the, the latest amount of court papers that have been lodged. I'm mm. sure there's going to be a few more bits of uh, uh, court papers to be lodged. And it'll be interesting to see what she's complaining about next. Um, and, and as I say... You know, the actual court case itself, this is, you know, this is the trailer for this court case. And, and if it was going to be a Hollywood, this is literally going to be a proper Hollywood blockbuster. Yes. Oh, absolutely right. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And I mean, I still can't quite believe that they'll go through with it. I'm sure that some cleverer person than them will say to them, look, you really don't want to go and turn up in a court of law where you are going to have to be put on the stand, uh, where you risk perjuring yourself, because I think that's what she might find herself doing. Um, uh, and instead, you could just walk away and everybody will forget about it, because the only reason this is even still going is because they're keeping it going. 
Well, you would think that they would actually listen to people, but clearly, if, if people are giving them uh, that sort of advice, they are not listening at the moment. They just seem to be ploughing headlong into a car crash scenario with the Mail on Sunday. And, you know, the Mail on Sunday is not going to... I, don't, I just do not believe that the Mail on Sunday is just going to throw its hands up at the end and say, oh, look, we're really sorry, we didn't mean, we didn't mean to do... Because there's nothing to apologise no. about. You know, they, they did the right thing, and the, the source, of course... Let's not forget as well, the, the, the one ace that they've got in their pocket is, is Thomas Markle, Megan's father. Mm. He's going to be up against his own daughter in court if it comes to that. And that's, that's going to be a sight to see. Well, I mean, at least he might get to see his, uh, his grandchild. You never know. Well, I don't, yes, I don't want it to be cancelled, Mike. I'm, I'm getting myself all, all, all <laughs> built up for the court case. No, I, listen, I don't want it to be cancelled either, but just for their own safety and sanity and, and, and common sense, because that's what we do here at Talk Radio, they should cancel it. They should just give it up, because they ain't going to win it. Charles, thank you very much indeed. Great to talk to you. Uh, former Royal Editor of The Sun, man of great knowledge about the royal family, and, and through the decades knows exactly what the royal family should be doing, how they should be dealing with things, what they should be saying. And it seems to me that the whole idea of Harry and Meghan going away from this country in order to stay away from the ghastly, horrible press, then suing the ghastly, horrible press and expecting them not to publish every single line of every single communique that they have, is quite frankly just naive and idiotic. And that entirely sums up what those two are. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.